Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, if you ask me, what is my biggest fault? What area of my character do I need the most work in? What is the sin that so easily entangles me? I would have to admit that it's pride. And pride is a subtle sin. It has a thousand faces. And it's a master of disguise. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, Pride is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world hates when he sees it in someone else, and which hardly anyone ever imagines that he's guilty of himself. I can guarantee you that there is no sin that will make you more unpopular than pride. And there is no sin that we're more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. C.S. Lewis also said, the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. And I've experienced that. The one sin I cannot stand in you is pride. Because it is my struggle and I'm offended by it in you. And I think maturity is when we get to the point where we hate pride in ourselves and we pity it when we see it in other people. Because there is no more dangerous sin than pride. Proverbs 16, 18 said, says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you want to guarantee that you will fall, just let pride take over your life. Heard about a frog who wanted to go south for the winter. It was too far to hop and he couldn't fly, so he came up with a solution. He got a couple of bird friends to hold each end of a stick in their beaks, and he clamped down with his mouth on the center of the stick. So as they flew south, he was going along for the ride. Things were going well until they flew over a field where a couple of farmers were standing. And one farmer, looking up, said to the other, What a brilliant idea. I wonder who thought of that. Must have been one of the birds. Overhearing the conversation, the frog couldn't contain himself. He said, it was me. The moral to the story is, if someone else gets the credit for your good idea, just keep your mouth shut. You know, pride was the original sin in the universe. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer was called the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn, but he wasn't satisfied. 
He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And you know what the next verse says? Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Pride says, I'm going up. The reality is, it takes you down. And in the garden, Satan slithered over to Eve and said, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. See, the temptation was not hunger. She had plenty to eat. The temptation was pride. It will make you like God. And Eve ate, and Adam ate, and mankind fell. Pride always leads to ruin. Muhammad Ali was probably the greatest boxer of all time. He certainly thought so. He loved to shout, I'm the greatest. One time in his prime, he got on an airplane and the flight attendant asked him to fasten his seatbelt and Ali said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she said, well, Superman doesn't need an airplane. Fasten up. You know, it's sad that this vibrant athlete who used to brag about being able to float like a butterfly now moves like a snail and speaks in mumbled tones. He's a lot more humble than he used to be by no choice of his own. Now, Pride, as most faults do, has its opposite. Pride is the vice. Humility is the virtue. And humility is a virtue to be greatly desired. This was Charles Spurgeon's prayer taken from his autobiography. I beseech you to wash my tears and purge my devotions, and to baptize me into a true burial with my Savior, that I may be quite forgotten in myself and only remembered in him. That's a great prayer. I want to be so close to Jesus and so identified with him in his death that people don't see me except in him. That's humility. When asked what were the chief precepts of the Christian religion, Augustine's answer was first, second, third, and always humility, humility, humility. Was he right? Is humility that important? Micah 6.8 says, What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? If you pay attention in Scripture, you will notice that God always chooses humble people. Abraham in Genesis 18.27 said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Jacob said in Genesis 32.10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. 
Moses said in Exodus 3.11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And then in Numbers 12.3 it says, Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Gideon in Judges 6.15 said, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's house. In 1 Samuel 9, Samuel said to Saul, you'll have all that is desirable in Israel. And Saul says, I am, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 7 says, And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David, Yet I am but a little child, and I do not know how to go out or come in. John the Baptist said in John 1.27, It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then later in John 3.30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Paul in Acts 20.19 says, I was with you serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. In Ephesians 3.8 he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. And in Galatians 6.14 he says, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though Paul was so humble and we admire that humility, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Why? To keep him from exalting himself because humility is so important in the lives of God's servants. And of course, the supreme example is Jesus. I can only find one place where Jesus describes his heart. And you know what he says? Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And of course, Philippians 2.8 tells us that even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. And we have the classic example of that in John 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. And that was not just a piece of momentary theatrics. That was really symbolizing the whole meaning and message of his life. Humility is essential. It's a virtue highly to be desired. Christ manifested it. God was pleased by it in everyone he chose to use throughout history. And God is still looking for men and women who will walk humbly with him. In fact, he will not walk with anyone else. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I want you to see this morning that pride is a grievous sin and humility is a desirous virtue. Pride is the attitude that says, I am the center of my universe. Someone has said, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Hieronymus Bosch, the 
Dutch painter painted a picture of each of the seven deadly sins. And for pride, he painted the picture of a woman looking at her face in a mirror held by the devil. That's pretty graphic depiction of pride. Those of you from my generation will remember the song by Carly Simon, You're So Vain. Carly Simon never revealed who she was talking about when she wrote the song, but she had been dating Warren Beatty and he had recently dumped her. And I'm told that he called her up after the song and thanked her for writing it about him. The words go like this. You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf, it was apricot. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself gavote, which is a French dance. And all the girls dreamed that they'd be your partner. They'd be your partner. And you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. You're so vain, I'll bet you think this song is about you. Don't you? Don't you? Now, some of you are so vain that you probably think this sermon is about you. (laughs) Don't you? (laughs) Don't you? And if you don't think this sermon is about you, it probably is. Now, it was originally written about the Corinthians. They had a problem of divisions, and pride had set in. They divided over human wisdom. One person said, well, I think this. And another in his pride said, well, I think this. And they were divided over human teachers. One said, I am of Paul. And another said, oh yeah, well, I am of Apollos. And Paul writes in verses 6 to 13 of chapter 4, for the purpose of, if you, if you look at the, verse, the end of verse 6, he says, so that no one of you will become arrogant. And that's a word that means puffed up. And it's a word that Paul uses often in this letter. In fact, later in this same chapter, in verse 18, he says, now some of you have become puffed up. And then in verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I shall find out not the words of those who are puffed up, but their power. And then in chapter 5 and verse 2, you have become puffed up. Chapter 8 and verse 1, at the end of the verse, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And then in chapter 13 and verse 4, At the end of that verse, he says, love is not puffed up. This word is a word that literally means bellows. It means to blow up or to inflate. Kind of like a frog's throat. Have you ever seen a frog's throat when it really gets blown up, puffed up? I've got a cat, about an 18-pound cat. And uh, I've seen him a couple times when he gets cornered. And he can't get out. If there's a dog or something that got him cornered in a, in a position where he can't run, you know what he does? He, he puffs himself up. It, it's amazing. He's already huge. 
But, he, but he, he, I don't know how he does it. He makes himself look twice as big as he is. He's like just, his hair stands out, his legs go up, he's got no joints anyway. So he's, he's just kind of like this big, puffed up cat trying to intimidate the attacker. And that's the picture behind this word. Because oftentimes we puff ourselves up in our pride. And in this passage... Paul gives five pins to deflate the pride of his readers. So if you are puffed up with pride this morning, here are some pins to pop your pride. I've listed five of them. They're pretty self-explanatory, so we'll go through them pretty rapidly. Number one is the illustration pin in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become puffed up in behalf of one against the other. Now Paul says, I figuratively applied these things to myself and Apollos for your sake. I applied them to us so that you would get it. Now, what has Paul figuratively applied to himself and Apollos? Well, if we go back over what we covered in 1 Corinthians already, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he used the illustration of himself as the preacher with stage fright. And he says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, I would suggest to you that a person filled with pride would not say that about himself. Paul says, you're exalting me as a preacher. The truth is, I come to you to preach in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And then he gives another illustration in chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, where he used the illustration of farming. And if you go back to that passage, verse 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Paul says, Apollos and myself are nothing. God is everything. We're just like farmers. We plant and we water, but we're totally dependent on God to cause the growth. That's humility. And then in chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, he used the illustration of builders. We're just builders building the temple of God on the foundation that's already laid, which is Jesus, knowing that one day God will test the quality of our works. And then he gives a final illustration at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, where he says in verse 1, we preachers are servants, which is the word under rowers. We row in the bottom of the boat, and we are stewards simply taking care of what God has entrusted to us and distributing that to God's people. Now, why did Paul use all these illustrations? Look again at verse 6. He says, So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become puffed up in behalf of one against the other. He says, So that you will learn not to be puffed up, and so that you will learn not to exceed what is written. Now let me pause right here first of all and say that this is a biblical basis for using illustrations when you teach. And if you read Paul, that's what he does. He uses illustrations, often of himself, 
often of farming, building. He uses illustrations. There's great value in practical illustrations. Just look at the teaching of Jesus and the parables that he used. Same idea. And so we have biblical precedent here and principle for using illustrations. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written? Well, I think he's saying, don't go farther than the Word of God in your estimate of yourself or others. Now, what does the Word say? Well, Romans 12.3 says, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And of course, we have the examples of people like Paul. Paul said, I am the least of the apostles. He said, I am less than the least of all saints. And he said, I am the chief of sinners. You know what order he said those three things in in his life? You might think he said, I was the chief of sinners first, and then he worked his way up to the least of the apostles because he's almost in the top ten when he says that. The reality is, if you look at the chronology of the way he said those things, first he said, I'm the least of the apostles. Then later he says, I'm less than the least of all the saints. And then at the end of his life, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. You see, his estimate of himself was going down as he grew in maturity spiritually rather than going up. He had a proper view of himself in humility. And then what does the word say should be our attitude toward leaders in the church? 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And 1 Timothy 5.17 says you're to give them double honor. And here Paul says, don't go beyond that. Esteem them highly, yes, but realize that they are under rowers of God. And the Corinthians had gone past what the word of God says and fallen into pride. And so Paul used the illustration pen. You see, if we would grasp that Paul was a preacher with his knees knocking, that Paul was a farmer totally dependent upon God, that he was a builder only doing his part, that he was an under rower at the bottom of the ship, that he was a steward just handing out God's message, it would deflate our pride. I love the example of Moses in Numbers 11. God told him to select 70 men and to go out to the tent of meeting and they gathered out there and it says when they gathered there the spirit of God rested on those 70 men and they all prophesied. It was a great event. Meanwhile, back in the camp, two guys, Eldad and Medad, had the spirit rest on them and they started prophesying in the camp. Joshua found out about it and came to Moses and said, make them stop. Isn't that typical? They're not part of the group. They're not part of the 70 and they're prophesying. You need to make them stop. You know what Moses said? He said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the spirit would rest on all of God's people and that they would all prophesy. What an attitude. They're not part of my group. Make them stop. Moses said, I wish everybody had the Spirit resting on them and that they will all prophesy. So the first pen is the illustration pen Paul shows from his own life and that of Apollos. 
humility. And then the second pin is the interrogation pin in verse 7. And Paul asked them three pointed questions in verse 7. Notice, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, if you've got an ego problem, these are some great questions. In fact, if you've got an ego problem, I would suggest maybe you print these out and put them on the mirror in your bathroom so in the morning you can answer these three questions before you go out into your day. First question, who regards you as superior? Now, you would like to think otherwise, but the reality is there's only one person who considers you superior, and that's you. If we we took a poll, you would only get one vote. And I think when that's the case, it would seem wise to reconsider your position. Second question, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you didn't get from somebody else or ultimately from the Lord? And the answer is nothing. I mean, think about it. Your next breath, your food, your health, your IQ, your talents. If you're a Christian, salvation, eternal life, God's presence within you, his word, his spiritual gifts, his love, his blessings, they're all given to you. Which brings us to question three. If you didn't receive them, why do you boast as if you did? If everything you have was given to you, then why do you strut around as if you earned it? What do you have to brag about? Nothing. I mean, what what are you proud of? Your looks? Who gave those to you? Your physique? Where'd you get that from? Your height? How'd you get that? You got more hair than somebody else in this room? How'd you get that? Your possessions? Where'd they, your intelligence? Who made your brain? Who allowed you to get the education you've got? You say, well, I'm a self-made man. You know, if you were born into an Aborigines tribe, you would be making mud bricks like all the rest of them today. God has even blessed you with where you were born, the country you were born in. All those things are given to you. There's no reason to be proud. There's no basis for pride. Everything we have, everything we are, comes from the Lord. James 1.17 says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know, pride is a funny thing because it's really self-delusion. I love what Howard Butt says about it, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, when I'm conceited, I'm lying to myself about who I am. The truth is that I'm small and weak and limited and totally dependent, but I deceive myself into believing that I'm strong and great and independent. So pride is not just an unfortunate little trait and humility an attractive little virtue. My inner psychological integrity is at stake because I am lying to myself. 
And also God's honor is at stake because when I'm proud, I'm really pretending to be God. And Howard Butt says, my pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. Pride is deceptive. It's self-delusion. I heard about a minister, a boy scout, a computer executive who were passengers on a plane. The pilot radioed back that the plane was going down and there were three parachutes and four people. So the pilot came back and said, I should have one of the parachutes because I have a wife and three small children and he jumped out of the plane. The computer executive said, I should have one of the parachutes because I'm the smartest man in the world and they need me. So he jumped out. The minister looked at the Boy Scout and said, you're young, I've lived a long life, I'm happy, I know the Lord, I'm ready to die. Um, You take the parachute and I'll go down with the plane. The Boy Scout said, relax, mister, the smartest man in the world just picked up my backpack and jumped out of the plane. (laughs) Pride is self-delusion. So Paul uses the interrogation pen in verse 7. He asks these three questions. Who says you're better? Nobody. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Then what reason do you have to be proud? None. And then third, he uses the inflation pen in verse 8. You know, one of the ways to pop a balloon is just, just keep blowing it up till it explodes. And that's kind of what Paul does here. Notice verse 8. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Now, that is dripping with sarcasm. He says, you're already filled. You're satisfied. You're rich. You have it all. You don't need anything else. And you are kings sitting on your thrones. And then Paul adds this phrase, without us. In other words, what he's saying is, you're already in the millennium kingdom, reigning now without us. And then notice what he adds at the end of verse 8. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings, so that we also might reign with you. I wish it was true that you were kings, because then we would be in the millennium kingdom, And we'd be reigning with you. And so here are Christians who are acting like they're already in the kingdom. They're acting like they're sitting on their thrones. They're acting like they're enjoying all the kingdom blessings. And they're not there yet. You know, sometimes I'd like to show this verse to some of the televangelists. So you look on TV and and, and you know their, their stage background is this gaudy, gold, glittery, background that kind of says we've got it all and sometimes when they do studies they find out that these people have no accountability of their finances that they have multiple mansions Uh, I saw an article recently that many of them have multiple jet planes that they fly around the country in and I'm thinking you guys are already reigning as kings what's going on This was the problem the disciples had. They always wanted to move into the kingdom today. They were always 
arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom, always arguing about who would sit where in the kingdom. And even when Jesus had risen from the dead and was about to ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1, they asked him, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time for the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And the Greek word there is martyrs. You will be my martyrs. What Jesus is saying, this is not the time to reign. This is not the time for exaltation. This is the time to witness and suffer and die. So Paul uses the inflation pen to show them that they are living in the wrong area code. They're acting like they're living in the kingdom when in reality they are still in this world. They are putting themselves on thrones when Jesus is calling them to get on their knees and wash feet. And then fourth is the inconsistency pin in verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and and to men. That word spectacle is the Greek word theatron from which we get our word theater. And I think Paul probably has in mind the Colosseum in Rome where they took prisoners who he says of himself are condemned to death and they would turn them loose with the lions in that, in that facility which would seat 50,000 spectators who would be entertained by watching this happen. Only in Paul's case, he says, the whole world is watching, not only men, but angels. Now, do you see the inconsistency? Your kings were spectacles. You flaunt your pride and achievements, we serve and die. And then he spells out the inconsistency even more clearly in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent. We're fools, you're prudent means you're sensible. You know, the world views preachers of the gospel as foolish people teaching foolish ideas that contribute absolutely nothing to mankind. That's the world's view of a preacher of the gospel. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of, cross, of the cross is foolishness to them. And Paul was labeled a fool. In Acts 17.18, the people of Athens said, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Now that's quite an introduction when you're going to speak. We have an idle babbler here who would like to say something. When he stood before Festus in Acts 26, Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. You are mad. But see, the Corinthians were not getting this kind of abuse because they were not standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then look at the rest of verse 10. He says, we are weak, but you're strong. Of course, in God's kingdom, you have to be weak because it tells us in 2 Corinthians 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. But the Corinthians were already saying they were strong in their own strength, and so they were essentially weak. And then he shows the next inconsistency at the end of verse 10. 
He says, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. The world is throwing us to the lions. It's applauding you. Something wrong with that picture. It's inconsistent. In fact, the implication is, if you notice the beginning of verse 9, he says, we the apostles are last of all. The implication is, you're first of all. And of course, Jesus said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. We are called to be last now so that we will be first then. We are called to suffer now so we will reign then. I noticed my daughter had a t-shirt on the other day. It may have been a camp t-shirt. I don't pay that much attention to clothes. But the front of her t-shirt in bold letters said, loser. So it kind of stood out to me. You know, I'm walking with a loser. And so I looked on the back of the t-shirt, and it had Jesus' words, whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. You see, that's the kind of loser we want to be that I lose my life to find it in Christ, that I take the last place now so that one day Christ will exalt me in his time. Fifth is the imitation pen in verses 11 to 13. Notice verse 11. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. Paul says we don't have food, we don't have clothing, we don't have shelter. In other words, if there's a kingdom, somebody forgot to tell us. If there's been a coronation day, we didn't get our crown. And how did Paul respond to being last? How did he respond to suffering and toiling and going without? Look at verse 12. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate or make peace. When Lauren Sani was asked, how can you know when you have a humble servant's attitude? He gave a great answer. He said, you know when you have a humble servant attitude by how you act when you're treated like one. Well, when Paul was treated like a servant, reviled, persecuted, slandered, he responded with a humble attitude. He blessed, he endured, he made peace. And then he adds this at the end of verse 13. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Scum and dregs. Those are things that are scraped off some filthy thing. The the King James Version says off-scouring. It's like the stuff that ends up in your scouring pad. Kind of disgusting stuff that you want to get rid of. He says that's who we are in the eyes of of the world. A week ago Friday, I left the coffee pot on in the workroom. 
and uh, Chad left on vacation and told me to lock the doors. He didn't tell me to turn off the coffee pot. You had to give me directions. I came in on Saturday, and the, I didn't know it would do this, but the, the, the coffee pot was sitting on top. There's two coffee pots, and it was on the top, and it's open above it. Well, it exploded. Not, not the glass. It just blew the coffee out all over the wall and the ceiling. But not all of it. Then, it. then it just boiled down so that there was like an inch of black crud in the bottom of the coffee pot. And as I was reading this, I thought, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, we're the dregs. We're the scum. You know what I did with that stuff? I, I chipped it out of there and I put it in a cup, put in some water, put it in the microwave, heated it up. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> what did I do with that? I threw it. It's disgusting. You throw it away. Paul says, we're not only viewed as worthless by the world, we're disgusting. We're the dregs. We're the stuff they go, ugh, get rid of that. And then you know what he does? We're going to cover this next week, but I want you to look down at verse 16. He says, therefore I exert you, be imitators of me. I'm scum. I'm the dregs of the world. I don't have food, I don't have clothing, I don't have shelter. They view me as a fool. I want you to be just like me. Why? Because there's no place for pride in the Christian life. There is no place for exaltation of self. We are called to a life of humility. And if you are seeking honor and exaltation from men, you have missed it. You have missed the whole concept of humility, to love people and serve people and to go as far as you can to be what you need to be for them without compromising the truth. And realizing that when you refuse to compromise the truth, you will probably experience persecution. Which would you rather be? Proud, puffed up, and living like a king in this world? or humble and obedient and treated like the scum of the earth. God only wants humble servants. And in closing, let me just show you where humility leads. You can leave 1 Corinthians and go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2.2, 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What's he talking about? Unity. I want you to have unity. How do you get unity? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. How do you get unity? You humble yourself so that you regard others as more important than yourself. 
I can't think of anybody I would rather be around than somebody who considers me more important than them. If we were all doing that in humility, we would have unity. And then he goes on to point out that we're to be like Christ. And what did Christ do? He humbled himself and went to the cross. And verse 9 says, therefore God highly exalted him. God's calling us to a life of humility, which will lead to unity today and exaltation tomorrow. It's not going to be popular in this world. In fact, I can guarantee you it will be unpopular in this world. But God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. This sermon is about you. And so I pray that each of us will reflect in our hearts today on how God wants to pop our pride and cause us to be those people who walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that confronts us in an area that uh, the world doesn't confront us in. The world almost encourages this kind of attitude, applauds this kind of attitude, the attitude of pride. And Father, I pray that you would help us to get outside of the perspective of the world and realize that you are a God who is opposed to pride and you are giving grace to the humble. And Father, we want to be those people who experience your grace in fullness as we allow ourselves to die to ourselves and to live in Christ and to experience what it is to have true unity among believers and to know what it is to anticipate one day when you will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We thank you for that privilege and the honor to be called to such a life. In Jesus' name, amen.